0: Shalom! Welcome to the Crimson Thread. I'm John Burns, pastor of Restoration Messianic Fellowship in the Boulder-Longmont area of northern Colorado. This teaching was recorded in a live Midrashic setting. We've edited it for clarity, but you may notice some jumps where we've taken out inaudible comments and sidetracks. Enjoy the study. What I would like to do tonight is start Galatians. Why Galatians? Well, because the thing that formed Luther's view on things was a radical reading of Galatians. And what I'm suggesting to you is that Luther's reading of Galatians and most of the modern church's reading of Galatians is incomplete. I'm in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Yeshua, Messiah, and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. All right, so there's your salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father, to whom be the the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's camp there a minute. Yeshua did lots of things. But Paul leads off with saying that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's an important salutation. And what he's doing is he's laying out what's going to happen in the rest of the letter. Okay, And I've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. You've got to understand the situation in the Roman Empire. We're in the book of Exodus now on Shabbat. And what you have in the book of Exodus is God, through the agency of Moses, reaches into Egypt and takes his people out of that present evil age. That's what the Exodus is all about, is God reaching in and pulling his people out. And so Paul is saying Yeshua came to do the same thing, and the evil age that he's bringing them out of there is Rome. So Rome is, if you will, several centuries later, the next Egypt in, in this, in this uh, drama. And the thing about human societies that are not organized with God as the king is at some point they decide that the people belong to them as opposed to people belonging to themselves. Everywhere, in every time, in every place, Governments that rise up that are organized by men sooner or later assert ownership over the citizenry. Rome very much did the same thing. And Rome had this additional twist that you had to worship Caesar. Caesar was, by title, one of his officials' titles, was he was the son of God. Because... What the empire would do is as a Caesar would die, the Senate would deify the dead emperor, which means that his son then assumes the official title of the son of God. So when Yeshua comes into that mix and says, hey, there's only one son of God and I'm it and you're not, what he's doing is just as Moses went into Pharaoh's court and said, let my people go or I'm going to pile you up to your hips and frogs, Yeshua is doing the same thing. He's going right against the empire. And so when Paul is saying that the reason Yeshua died, and again, it's not the only reason, but it it, it is a reason that Yeshua died, is to deliver us from this present evil age. That's, again, this is a very political statement. What's going to happen is Paul is in this process, he's going to wreck the Roman Empire. So you have the, the letters of Paul and the New Testament and the witness of believers. And within a fairly short time, several hundred years, the Roman Empire's history. They took it down. And they took it down with letters and ideas. They didn't take it down by force of arms. So I am suggesting to you that Yeshua, in fact, did exactly what he said he would do, just not in the same dramatic way that we see in the Exodus. That's going to happen on his second advent when he comes back as king. And then it will be dramatic. There's your introduction. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Messiah and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, so the question then becomes, what's the gospel? And what is the alternative gospel? Both of those things are knowable. The alternative gospel, and there's a, a plaque, Asia Minor, which is the gospel according to Caesar, which is to say Caesar has come to deliver you from oppression, to give you prosperity, and to generally make things good all the way around. And this is the gospel of Caesar. And again, what Paul is saying here is he is cautioning against a gospel made by men. Because he's saying, my gospel wasn't made by men. And he'll say that more emphatically in a minute. And he specifically asserts that the gospel he's talking about is not human gospel. And he's contrasting it to the human gospel, whatever that may be. Different cultures and different times and different places have different versions of the human gospel. But they're all the human gospel And as such, they stand against the gospel of God. Verse 10. For am I now seeking approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Messiah. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Yeshua Messiah. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my elders. Ding, 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 ding. Traditions of my elders. Code phrase. That has a meaning in Judaism. Fifteen. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. All right. So Paul is asserting that he has got a direct pipeline to God and he got the gospel by revelation. And what I will tell you is that's the only way to get the gospel. Moses got it by revelation. The gospel that, to the Hebrews that were in Egypt. I mean, Moses came with a gospel. I have come to set you free. And that gospel was given to him by revelation. Same here. Now, this again becomes one of the sticking points in modernity. Because what modernity asserts, is the only thing that has any validity is reason logic in other words if you can't prove it it isn't true that is one of the cornerstones of modernity and again luther popped back and and basically said all right you know we're going to take the gospel just as a foundation because he wasn't willing to break with the church but A nominalist strictly would say, if you can't prove it, it ain't true. Well, I think everybody here knows lots of things that are true that you can't prove. Again, you're designed that way. You're designed that there are a whole bunch of things that you know that are beyond logic. What Paul is saying here is this gospel that I have is beyond logic. You're not going to be able to prove it, it is not man's gospel. It is not derivable from any physical principles. It was given to me directly by God, and it is true. So that's, that's what the assertion is. What God does is he is consistent. And so you go clear back to the Torah, and what you find is the pattern of what Paul's gospel is is established by Moses. So, everything that Yeshua does is prefigured by the prophets, and Yeshua is the confirmation of what has been spoken before. That's his authentication. Verse 18 Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Silesia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what Paul is saying is, first off, my gospel is by revelation. Second off, I went back to Jerusalem, to the elders of the church who walked with Yeshua to make sure that I had not gone astray. In that process, Titus was not required to be circumcised. Now, Titus is a a Greek, as it says here. And we'll talk about circumcision and Jews and Greeks and a whole bunch of other stuff as we go on. That's that's part of this whole argument. Verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Messiah Yeshua so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what he's saying is, I went back to the headquarters, and I checked with the guys who were with Yeshua, and they said, what you're doing is okay. Keep, go, keep doing it. Looks like you've been given the territory of the Gentiles. Peter has been given the territory of the circumcision, which is Hebrews. And keep doing what you're doing. And he then also sort of makes a side comment about some false brethren. Now, we know from the book of Acts, Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council. And it says in Acts 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this is the meeting that Paul is talking about in Galatians. You got Paul, you got Barnabas, and you got the circumcision party. Now, these circumcision guys are believers. They are believers in the Messiah. They are not traditional Jews in the sense that they have rejected Messiah. However, they are of the opinion that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. And the Council of Jerusalem comes down on, no, you don't. And talk about that in in a minute. I'm just laying out background. But that's the incidents being referred, referred to in Galatians is Acts chapter 15. Let's go back to Galatians. I'm in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews act hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay. You remember back when Peter gets sent to Cornelius, and we have the incident with Peter and the magic sheet. When Peter goes to Cornelius, he has to be told by God that it's okay to go into a Gentile's house because the Jews separated themselves from the Gentiles and the reason for that had to do with food. Many do to this day. If you, if you invite an Orthodox Jew into your home he will not eat anything except salad preferably on paper plates that you have purchased for the occasion. So what happened was you had some guys from the circumcision party who come down and Peter gets all nervous because he doesn't want to be seen eating with Gentiles because to the circumcision party that would be offensive and would basically brand him as, I don't know if it would brand him as a heretic, that's probably too strong, but boy it would be culturally abrupt. So he goes off and starts eating, separating himself, eating with the circumcision part. And Paul says, hey, you're missing the boat here. And you can sort of imagine him saying, you know, remember the incident with the sheet? God told you it was okay. Because remember what the sheet was all about was nothing about clean and unclean food. It was clean and unclean people. So... Peter says in the incident with the sheep, from this I learned not to call any man unclean. Now, that still doesn't mean that you eat ham sandwiches with them. That's not what's being talked about here. What we're talking about is, can you have table fellowship with them? And, you know, if they insist on being bacon-breath, you don't have to eat the bacon, but you can sit there and have fellowship with them. And these guys were not doing that. All right, so next is going to be justified by faith. And rather than start that, I'm going to come back now and talk about circumcision and what the issue is there. All right, so let's talk about circumcision and what's going on here. The covenant with Abraham is a covenant that is marked by circumcision. And Paul will go on later on to talk about the fact that Abraham was saved before The Torah was given. And circumcision was mandated before the Torah was given. And in fact, let's go back to the circumcision place, which is in uh, probably Genesis 17. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, said to him, I am El Shaddai, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make unto you nations, and kings shall come before you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you, throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant, to be your God, Be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be your God. Verse 9. And God said to Abraham, notice the name is now changed. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of my covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who is brought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there's the covenant. A couple of things in here. Notice that back up in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will establish you into nations. And kings shall come from you. So this is going to spread, if you will, beyond Just Abraham. And and again, for those of us who are of two-house persuasion, we think that it has, in fact, spread out. What are the consequences of not being circumcised in Israel? Basically, you don't get to partake of the benefits of being a member of the tribe. Now, we just did Revelation, remember? Remember? And in Revelation, you have the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, adorned as a bride, and all that kind of thing, right? And one of the things that it says is that there are still going to be the nations. So, in fact, everybody doesn't become Israel. There's still Israel, and there's still the nations. So, if you have someone who is a Gentile, who is a born-again, tongue-talking, water-walking believer in God, but is a Gentile, is he a member of Israel? No. No. Is he saved? You betcha. You can be grafted in. and And that's a matter of choosing to join Israel. But there are still... The nations. So the the, the nations continue to exist, which doesn't mean that members of the nations are not, in the Baptist sense of the word, saved. They are. In other words, they, they have the Holy Spirit, they walk with God. In the new Jerusalem, they will walk according to Torah, because God only has one law for his people and the sojourner. So to be cut off from Israel. Doesn't then mean that you are not saved, in again the Baptist sense. What it means is you're no longer a member of the nation. To describe the difference between Israel and the nations, you see it in microcosm between Israel and the Levites. In other words, we're all Israel, but the Levites are special, they are set apart, they've got other duties. They get fed by us. In other words, we work to support them. Uh, All of those things are peculiar to the Levites, but that doesn't mean that everybody isn't the nation of Israel. Same thing now with Israel and the nations. Israel has got a special job, a special mission, and they are God's special treasure. He says so. That doesn't mean that the nations aren't part of humanity, and the nations then aren't able to enter into relationship with God. We find out later in the uh, Torah that if a sojourner comes into Israel and wants to partake of the Passover, he may get circumcised and do so. So, don't get me wrong. Israel's easy to join. I mean, you, you can do that, and you can be grafted in. That, you know, Paul clearly says that. But understand that the covenants are all with Israel. Okay, the new covenant is with Israel. It's not with Gentiles. That's not what most, most of the church understands. That's you know, The basement for replacement theology is Israel basically blew it when they rejected the Messiah. And so Israel is out and God has made a swappy changey. And now the church is heir to all of the spiritual promises of Israel. That has no basis in Scripture. Because one of the things that God says is, you are my special people. And one of the things that Jews have been trying to do for millennia is get out of being special people. It hurts sometimes. In other words, they're Israel. They're God's chosen people. And, and, and when I say they, I'm, I'm also thinking many of we are Israel and don't know it. And that's, of course, the basis of two-house doctrine is that Israel is, in fact, bigger than just the Jews that we know of. So, now think about this for a minute, what we just said. Paul, when he goes back to the council in Jerusalem, has got Titus with him. And Titus is a full-blooded Buck Greek. And is Titus full of the Holy Spirit, talks in tongues, walks on water, does all that stuff? You bet. In a Baptist sense, Titus would be saved. In other words, when the resurrection comes, Titus will be, I'm assuming now, I don't know Titus personally, but I am assuming that in the resurrection, Titus will be resurrected and will be among the righteous. He will not be one who's thrown into the lake of fire. Is he a Hebrew? No. Will he be one of the nations? Yes. Yes. Now, when Paul does the same thing with Timothy, Timothy now is a different guy because Timothy has got a Jewish mother. So Paul says, hmm, you have a deficiency in your upbringing there, boy. We need to fix that. And he does. Now, does that mean that if he hadn't been circumcised at the resurrection, Timothy would have been thrown into the lake of fire? I don't believe so. I believe that Timothy had the Holy Spirit, a member of the kingdom of God. At the resurrection, he will not go into the lake of fire, but he will be among those resurrected. But he would not, he would be cut off from Israel. Israel and the nations are different because God said so. That doesn't mean that if you are a member of the nations, that you get thrown into the lake of fire. And that, and that by the way, is how I interpret the Baptist notation of being saved. So in the Baptist sense, I interpret being saved as one who, upon resurrection, does not go into the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. But again, it's real important to, to get what's actually being said here straight. And you have to get rid of replacement theology. And you have to get rid of thinking in a nominalistic way completely. Because he is no longer a rabbinic Jew. And we'll get into that. Thank you for bringing that up. My former life in Judaism. Judaism, in the sense of this letter, he is talking about the religious system as practiced by the Pharisees, which is what he used to be. Remember, Paul, in other places, says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Yeshua, when he was here on earth, on numerous occasions duked it out with the Pharisees. And so what Paul is saying is, that's what I grew up in. And under that system, I was persecuting the church, I was doing all sorts of stuff, and I was a hot rock. I was rising in that system at meteoric rates because I was zealous and I was really smart. But I'm no longer in that system. We don't have time to do this tonight, but we'll do that. That's the, what you've touched on here is the crux of the rest of the letter. And hold a bookmark there because we'll talk about that and we'll also talk about faith, but what you've just the question you just asked is the crux of the whole letter. And the rabbinic system has a lot of has a lot of truth and it's also got a lot of junk, just like Catholicism on the Christian side. A lot of truth there, but a lot of junk. And what Paul is saying is I've come out of the junk, I got my revelation straight from the source, and I am no longer confused. Now, one of the thing before we get off of Israel and close it is my belief based on nothing it it is my belief that most of us here are Israel because most of the people that I know that come into this have been Christians for long periods of time and they walk into a messianic service not just here but anywhere and it's you'll see people with tears running down their eyes Um, and it's, I'm finally home. And so what I'm saying is, not everybody is Israel, but it is my belief that most of us here are. And again, I've told this story before, and I'll tell it again. My sister and I came to this independently. We hadn't talked for a few years and got together and talked, and, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, you are? You are? And... We both came to this completely independently. Her daughter my niece my sister keep asking why don't you come to church with me? And And I have trouble saying this every time I say it I get choked up. My niece said mom I know if I go into that place I'll start crying and I won't be able to stop. So based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever I think most of us here Or Judah. Or not Judah, but Hebrews. With that, would somebody like to close in prayer? What I would like to do tonight is start Galatians. Why Galatians? Well, because the thing that formed Luther's view on things was a radical reading of Galatians. And what I'm suggesting to you is that Luther's reading of Galatians... And most of the modern church's reading of Galatians is formed by this nominalist philosophy and is incomplete. So let's look at Galatians. I'm in chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Yeshua, Messiah, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches in Galatia. All right, so there's your salutation. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father to whom be the, the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's camp there a minute. Yeshua did lots of things. But Paul leads off with saying that he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's an important salutation. And what he's doing is he's laying out what's going to happen in the rest of the letter. Okay, And I've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. You've got to understand the situation in the Roman Empire. We're in the book of Exodus now on Shabbat. And what you have in the book of Exodus is God, through the agency of Moses, reaches into Egypt and takes his people out of that present evil age. That's what the Exodus is all about, is God reaching in and pulling his people out. And so Paul is saying Yeshua came to do the same thing, and the evil age that he's bringing them out of there is Rome. So Rome is, if you will, several centuries later, the next Egypt in this this, uh, drama. And the thing about human societies that are not organized with God as the king is at some point they decide that the people belong to them as opposed to people belonging to themselves. Everywhere, in every time, in every place, governments that rise up that are organized by men sooner or later assert ownership over the citizenry. Rome very much did the same thing. And Rome had this additional twist that you had to worship Caesar. Caesar was, by title, one of his official titles, was he was the son of God. Because what the empire would do is, as a Caesar would die, the Senate would deify the dead emperor, which means that his son then assumes the official title of the son of God. So when Yeshua comes into that mix and says there's only one son of God and I'm it and you're not. What he's doing is just as Moses went into Pharaoh's court and said, let my people go or I'm going to pile you up to your hips and frogs. Yeshua is doing the same thing. He's going right against the empire. And so when Paul is saying that the reason Yeshua died, and again, it's not the only reason, but it, it, it is a reason that Yeshua died, is to deliver us from this present evil age. That's, again, a, this is a very political statement. What's going to happen is Paul is in this process, he's going to wreck the, the Roman Empire. So you have the, the letters of Paul and the New Testament and the witness of believers, and within a fairly short time, several hundred years, the Roman Empire's history. They took it down. And they took it down with letters and ideas. They didn't take it down by force of arms. So I am suggesting to you that Yeshua, in fact, did exactly what he said he would do, just not in the same dramatic way that we see in the Exodus. That's going to happen on his second advent when he comes back as king. And then it will be dramatic. There's your introduction. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Messiah and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Messiah. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received... Let him be accursed. Okay, so the question then becomes, what's the gospel? And what is the alternative gospel? Both of those things are known. The alternative gospel, and there's a, a plaque, Asia Minor, which is the gospel according to Caesar, which is to say, Caesar has come to deliver you from oppression, to give you prosperity, and to generally make things good all the way around. And this is the gospel of Caesar. And again, what Paul is saying here is he is cautioning against a gospel made by men. Because he's saying, my gospel wasn't made by men. And he'll say that more emphatically in a minute. And he specifically asserts that the gospel he's talking about is not human gospel. And he's contrasting it to the human gospel, whatever that may be. Different cultures and different times and different places have different versions of the human gospel, but they're all the human gospel, and as such they stand against the gospel of God. Verse 10. For am I now seeking approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Messiah. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Yeshua Messiah. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my elders. Ding, 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 ding. Traditions of my elders. Code phrase. That has a meaning in Judaism. 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. All right, so Paul is asserting that he has got a direct pipeline to God, and he got the gospel by revelation. And what I will tell you is that's the only way to get the gospel. Moses got it by revelation. The gospel that, to the Hebrews that were in Egypt. I mean, Moses came with a gospel. I have come to set you free. And that gospel was given to him by revelation. Same here. Now this again becomes one of the sticking points in modernity because what modernity asserts is the only thing that has any validity is reason, logic. In other words, if you can't prove it, it isn't true. That is one of the cornerstones of modernity. And again, Luther popped back and, and basically said, all right, you know, right, we're going to take the gospel just as a foundation because he wasn't willing to break with the church. But a nominalist strictly would say, if you can't prove it, it ain't true. Well, I think everybody here knows lots of things that are true that you can't prove. Again, you're designed that way. You're designed that there are a whole bunch of things that you know that are beyond logic. What Paul is saying here is, this gospel that I have is beyond logic. You're not going to be able to prove it. It is not man's gospel. It is not derivable from any physical principles. It was given to me directly by God, and it is true. So that's, that's what the assertion is here. What God does is he is consistent. And so you go clear back to the Torah, And what you find is the pattern of what Paul's gospel is, is established by Moses. So everything that Yeshua does is prefigured by the prophets, and Yeshua is the confirmation of what has been spoken before. That's his authentication. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Silesia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I had proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So what Paul is saying is, first off, my gospel is by revelation. Second off, I went back to Jerusalem, to the elders of the church who walked with Yeshua to make sure that I had not gone astray. In that process, Titus was not required to be circumcised. Now, Titus is a, a Greek, as it says here. And we'll talk about circumcision and Jews and Greeks and a whole bunch of other stuff as we go on. That's, that's part of this whole argument, verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Messiah Yeshua so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what he's saying is, I went back to the headquarters, and I checked with the guys who were with Yeshua, and they said, what you're doing is okay. Keep keep doing it. Looks like you've been given the territory of the Gentiles. Peter has been given the territory of the circumcision, which is Hebrews. And keep doing what you're doing. And he then also sort of makes a side comment about some false brethren. Now, we know from the book of Acts, Acts 15 is the Jerusalem council. And it says in Acts 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas... Had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem with the apostles and the elders about this question. So this is the meeting that Paul is talking about in Galatians. You got Paul, you got Barnabas, and you got the circumcision party. Now these circumcision guys are believers. They are believers in the Messiah. They are not traditional Jews in the sense that they have rejected Messiah. However. They are of the opinion that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. And the Council of Jerusalem comes down on, no, you don't. And talk about that in in a minute. I'm just laying out background. But that's the incidence being referred, referred to in Galatians, is Acts chapter 15. Let's go back to Galatians. I'm in verse 11. if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay. You remember back when Peter gets sent to Cornelius and we have the incident with Peter and the magic sheet? When Peter goes to Cornelius, he has to be told by God that it's okay to go into a Gentile's house because the Jews separated themselves from the Gentiles, and the reason for that had to do with food. Many do to this day. If you if you invite an Orthodox Jew into your home, he will not eat anything except salad, preferably on paper plates that you have purchased for the occasion. So what happened was you had some guys from the circumcision party who come down and Peter gets all nervous because he doesn't want to be seen eating with Gentiles because to the circumcision party that would be offensive and would basically brand him as, I don't know if it would brand him as a heretic, that's probably too strong, but boy, it would be culturally abrupt. So he goes off and starts eating separating himself, eating with the circumcision party. And Paul says, hey, you're missing the boat here. And you can sort of imagine him saying, you know, remember the incident with the sheet? God told you it was okay. Because remember what the sheet was all about it was nothing about clean and unclean food. It was clean and unclean people. So Peter says in the incident with the sheet, from this I learned not to call any man unclean. Now, that still doesn't mean that you eat ham sandwiches with them. That's not what's being talked about here. What we're talking about is, can you have table fellowship with them? And, you know, if they insist on being bacon breath, you don't have to eat the bacon, but you can sit there and have fellowship with them. And these guys were not doing that. All right, so next is going to be justified by faith. And rather than start that, I'm going to come back now and talk about circumcision and what the issue is there. All right, so let's talk about circumcision and what's going on here. The covenant with Abraham is a covenant that is marked by circumcision. And Paul will go on later on to talk about the fact that Abraham was saved before the Torah was given. And circumcision was mandated before the Torah was given. And in fact, let's go back to the circumcision Place, which is in uh, probably Genesis 17. Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make unto you nations, and kings shall come before you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you, throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant. To be your God, be a God to you, and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you, and to your offspring after you, land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be your God. Verse nine. And God said to Abraham, notice the name is now changed, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of my covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and who is brought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So there's the covenant. A couple of things in here. Notice that back up in Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will establish you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So this is going to spread, if you will, beyond just Abraham. And and again, for those of us who are of two-house persuasion, we think that it has, in fact, spread out. What are the consequences of not being circumcised in Israel. Basically, you don't get to partake of the benefits of being a member of the tribe. Now, we just did Revelation, remember? And in Revelation, you have the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, adorned as a bride, and all that kind of thing, right? And one of the things that it says is that there are still going to be the nations. So, in fact, everybody doesn't become Israel. There's still Israel, and there's still the nations. So, if you have someone who is a Gentile, who is a born-again, tongue-talking, water-walking believer in God, but is a Gentile, is he a member of Israel? No. No. Is he saved? You betcha. You can be grafted in, and that and that's a matter of choosing to join Israel. But there are still the nations. So the, the, the nations continue to exist, which doesn't mean that members of the nations are not, in the Baptist sense of the word, saved. They are. In other words, they, they have the Holy Spirit. They walk with God. In the new Jerusalem, they will walk according to Torah because God only has one law for his people and the sojourner. So to be cut off from Israel doesn't then mean that you are not saved in, again, the Baptist sense. What it means is you're no longer a member of the nation to describe the difference between Israel and the nations, you see it in microcosm between Israel and the Levites. In other words, we're all Israel, but the Levites are special. They are set apart. They've got other duties. They get fed by us. In other words, we work (coughs) to support them. Uh, All of those things are peculiar to the Levites, But that doesn't mean that everybody isn't the nation of Israel. Same thing now with Israel and the nations. Israel has got a special job, a special mission, and they are God's special treasure. He says so. That doesn't mean that the nations aren't part of humanity, and the nations then aren't able to enter into relationship with God. We find out later in the uh, Torah that if a sojourner comes into Israel, and wants to partake of the passover he may get circumcised and do so so don't get me wrong israel's easy to join I mean, you you can do that and you can be grafted in that you know paul clearly says that but understand that the covenants are all with israel okay the new covenant is with israel it's not with gentiles that's not what most most of the church understands. That's the basement for replacement theology is Israel basically blew it when they rejected the Messiah. And so Israel is out and God has made a swampy changey and now the church is heir to all of the spiritual promises of Israel. That has no basis in scripture. Because one of the things that God says is, you are my special people. And one of the things that Jews have been trying to do for millennia is get out of being special people. It hurts sometimes. In other words, they're Israel. They're God's chosen people. And, and, and when I say they, I'm, I'm also thinking many of we are Israel and don't know it. And that's, of course, the basis of two-house doctrine is that Israel is, in fact, bigger than just the Jews that we know of. So, now think about this for a minute, what we just said. Paul, when he goes back to the council in Jerusalem, has got Titus with him. And Titus is a full-blooded Buck Greek. And is Titus full of the Holy Spirit, talks in tongues, walks on water, does all that stuff? You bet in a Baptist sense, Titus would be saved. In other words, when the resurrection comes, Titus will be, I'm assuming now, I don't know Titus personally, but I am assuming that in the resurrection, Titus will be resurrected and will be among the righteous. He will not be one who's thrown into the lake of fire. Is he a Hebrew? No. Will he be one of the nations? Yes. Yes. Now, when Paul does the same thing with Timothy, Timothy now is a different guy because Timothy has got a Jewish mother. So Paul says, hmm, you have a deficiency in your upbringing there, boy. We need to fix that. And he does. Now, does that mean that if he hadn't been circumcised at the resurrection, Timothy would have been thrown into the lake of fire? I don't believe so. I believe that Timothy had the Holy Spirit, a member of the kingdom of God. At the resurrection, he will not go into the lake of fire, but he will be among those resurrected. But he would, not, he would be cut off from Israel. Israel and the nations are different because God said so. That doesn't mean that if you are a member of the nations that you get thrown into the lake of fire. And that, and that by the way, is how I interpret the Baptist notation of being saved. So in the Baptist sense, I interpret being saved as one who, upon resurrection, does not go into the lake of fire. But again, it's real important to, to get what's actually being said here straight. And you have to get rid of replacement theology. And you have to get rid of thinking in a nominalistic way completely. Because he is no longer a rabbinic Jew. And we'll get into that. Thank you for bringing that up. My former life in Judaism. Judaism, in the sense of this letter, he is talking about the religious system as practiced by the Pharisees, which is what he used to be. Remember, Paul, in other places, says, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Yeshua, when he was here on earth, on numerous occasions duked it out with the Pharisees. And so what Paul is saying is, that's what I grew up in. And under that system, I was persecuting the church, I was doing all sorts of stuff, and I was a hot rock. I was rising in that system at meteoric rates because I was zealous and I was really smart. But I'm no longer in that system. We don't have time to do this tonight, but we'll do that. That's the, what you've touched on here is the crux of the rest of the letter. And hold a bookmark there because we'll talk about that and we'll also talk about faith but what you've just the question you just asked is the crux of the whole letter and the rabbinic system has a lot of has a lot of truth and it's also got a lot of junk just like catholicism on the christian side a lot of truth there but a lot of junk and what paul is saying is i've come out of the junk i got my revelation straight from the source and i am no longer confused now one of the Thing before we get off of Israel and we'll close. It is my belief, based on nothing, it is, it is my belief that most of us here are Israel. Because most of the people that I know that come into this have been Christians for long periods of time. And they walk into a messianic service, not just here, but anywhere, and it's, you'll see people with tears running down their eyes. Um, and it's I'm finally home and so what I'm saying is not everybody is Israel but it is my belief that most of us here are and again I've told this story before and I'll tell it again my sister and I came to this independently we hadn't talked for a few years and got together and talked and, you know, what are you doing, what are you doing oh you are, you are and we both came to this completely independently. Her daughter, my niece, my sister keep asking, well, why don't you come to church with me? And, fi- and I have trouble saying this. Every time I say it, I get choked up. My niece said, Mom, I know if I go into that place, I'll start crying and I won't be able to stop. So, based on absolutely no evidence whatsoever I think most of us here are Judah, or not Judah, but Hebrews. With that, would somebody like to close in prayer? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this study and would like to hear more, go to www.crimsonthread.com. There you'll find this study in its entirety, as well as other resources for studying the scriptures from a messianic perspective. Thank you and shalom.